Praise God. Welcome to this teaching. Pray that you will be blessed as you join us. Janet and I are sitting at the table here, enjoying the presence of the Lord and just about to enjoy His precious Word. To get started, I'd like us just to read 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to read verse 12 and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. But then, face to face. Now we see in a mirror, but then face to face. The title of this message is Face to Face. Face to face. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. May it warm and bless our souls, Lord. May it be an encouragement. May it be instructive. May it extend your kingdom within all those who are in the sound of my voice. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your precious word. Holy Spirit, we respect you. We acknowledge you. We understand that you were the motivating force behind the word as men of old wrote under your inspiration. May we, men of today and women of today, avail ourselves of you, the same spirit, to teach us in the ways of God. We thank you that no spirit of darkness can interfere with this word and that our eyes will be enlightened and our spirit man will receive revelation straight from the throne of heaven. We ask it in Yeshua's mighty, wonderful, powerful name. Amen. Praise God. I really enjoy that song that we often sing in church, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I'm sure all of us do. That's actually a hymn. A hymn as opposed to a psalm. The Bible is encourage us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The difference, this distinction between a hymn and a psalm is that a psalm is basically the scripture set to music. A hymn, on the other hand, takes some form of ideal sentiment and expresses that sentiment from the Bible in music and sets it to poetry. Now, that's what Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus does captures a particular sentiment which I'm sure we all agree with. But the other day I was reading through the book of Psalms and I had a revelation which made me appreciate this hymn and see it in a different light. I'd like us just to read Psalm 4 verse 1 and I want us to see something that is very, very powerful and very, very beautiful. Psalm 4 verse 1 I've read the Psalms through many a time, and as is often the case, you read something, you think you know it, and then the Holy Spirit actually reveals something more, and you realize you probably never really understood it at all. It says here, Hear me when I call, O God. Now listen to this, O God of my righteousness. You see that? I've never realized or seen David the psalmist approaching God as the God of his righteousness. Notice something. He doesn't say the God that makes me righteous or has made me righteous or the righteous God. No, the God of my righteousness. I read that and it struck me. And I spent a bit of time thinking about it. And I began to realize there's a principle here 
that is of great value. Now, just to explain and give the background to this whole thing, I'm sure all of us by now understand something. There's a big difference between knowing the theory about something and putting that theory into practice. There's a big divide. The theory is important, but that theory, in a sense, remains dead until it is actually activated. It's a lot like faith and works, which we've been studying in the book of James. You see, the faith is necessary, but if that faith doesn't produce anything, it's useless. It's like having a car full of petrol. That petrol sits in the car, and you can, on one tank, you might both drive from here to Cape Town. Having the petrol in the car, boasting about how far you can travel, how far will it get us? You will not move one centimeter. I mean, what's got to happen? That petrol has got to be ignited. That car has got to move. And many of God's theories, in fact, all of his promises are like that. And I try as best I can to encourage us not to just look and enjoy the promises for the intrinsic values, but to activate them and live in the blessing. Now, you see, in Ephesians 2, let's go there for a start. I'm building up to something. If you can just stay with me, I know this will bless us. And it has the potential of revolutionizing our walk with the Lord. Amen. Let's just go to Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read from verse 13 to 18. Now we read this, we've studied it, etc., etc. But now in Christ, Yeshua, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice, we have been. It's something that has happened. For himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down. Notice again the tense. Has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh this enmity. We spoke about, talked about it, we taught it when we studied Ephesians. This enmity, this separation, this big elephant in the room that keeps us from our God. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus making peace. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby putting to death this enmity. So you see, has Christ gone to the cross? Yes, he has. And he's risen from the dead, as we all know. We celebrate that every Easter. He did it 2,000 plus years ago. So you see, that enmity, sin, in the light of the law. You see, we know the law, now we are guilty. And that sense of guilt, deep down, is the enmity that lurks in the room. As I say, the elephant in the room. And that which stops us, from relating to God. Well, the Bible's very really clear. That enmity has, by one act on the cross, been totally and utterly destroyed. He is our peace. We have been made one body and we have access to God. Direct access. The enmity has been destroyed. Now that's the theory. Alright? That is the theory. But what happens in practice? Isn't it amazing how we so often 
walked around with this sense of deep guilt and it sabotages our relationship with the living God. And you find it in all Christians to a greater or lesser extent. Sometimes that guilt is totally unfounded. Totally unfounded. There's no reason for it. But even if there was a reason for it, there's something that's much greater than that. And that's his blood. You see. Now what happens is, I believe sometimes we come to church, or the motivating force very often for coming to church is to try and alleviate that. Just to try and get rid of that. I remember one lady, many of you will remember her as well. When we first had contact with her and her wonderful husband, the first word she said when she walked into her house, I have to tell you, I have to tell you that I smoke. <laughs> right? Well, she told me, not that I didn't pick it up the moment she walked in, but what I'm trying to say is, what is this big thing that hung around her neck? This guilt. She explained that as a child growing up, she never touched a cigarette. And then she walked into the post office, her first job, and all the other girls were smoking, and they said, yeah, have a try, you see? And you know what happened. From then on, it became a love affair. And she never got free from it to her dying day. In fact, those cigarettes killed her at the end of the day. But we tried very hard for her to understand that God doesn't worry about your cigarette smoking. He's more concerned about you. He's more interested in you as a person, you see. And sure, that cigarette smoking is a sin like many other things. But the problem was she couldn't get around it. And it crippled her activity as a child of God. She couldn't prophesy in church. To try and get her to pray or to do anything was almost impossible. And she was a lovely, wonderful person. Wonderful family. But this thing stopped her. Now what was it? Her heart condemned her, as we know. And so even though she's in the church, taking communion, rehearsing the sacrifice, the great sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and maybe for a few seconds she feels maybe God accepts me. And then what happens? Well, Revelation 12.10, who comes around? You see, the accuser of the brethren. This is Satan's trick, his job. His job is to accuse you and I. And you see, the effect of that accusation, whether it's grounded in truth or not, is separation. You see, his big trick is to get us separated from God. And it might not look so on the outside, but it's happening on the inside, you see. The moment he can orchestrate that separation, what happens? It's like the time when I got so fed up with God, I'd been on a missionary trip, it was a complete disaster. I got home to my cold little room that I was living in, our house basically, servants' quarters. And I just said, God, that's it. I took my Bible, I flung it against the wall, said, no more, I'm not serving you anymore. Look what you've done to me. Had a nice, big, fat, juicy pity party. Now, none of you have done a thing like that, have you? Of course not. It's only reprobates like myself, you see. So here I am having this pity party. And when I sort of get finished with the pity party, I wise up, you see, and I think to myself, well, now what? Do you understand? Because I know enough to know that you either serve one or the other. You can't serve both at the same time. It's either one or the other. 
Like one preacher said, if you're sitting on the fence, the fence belongs to the other. So it's one way or the other, you see. So here I am. I've just said to God, no more you. Now what am I left with? The snake. And at that stage, fortunately, I knew enough to know that the snake actually wanted to kill me. Physically, in addition to mentally and spiritually, you see. So I got to my knees, I wisened up. Hobson's choice, you understand. Now, you see, the devil's trick is, if he can separate you from God, guess what? You're now his, in a sense. Can you see this? And this sabotages the church. People, I believe, very often who would like to be used in the gifts, would like to preach, would like to do great things for God, would like to get people saved. They're in a situation, the person needs to be saved. They know how to get the person saved, but they don't. Why? Something rise up and says, oh, you're a filthy sinner. Who are you? You see? Now, let me just try and explain what I'm getting to here. You see, the truth is, as you read in the scripture, that enmity has been removed. It has been, you see. It's not a case of, oh, now we have to go to the cross again. No, 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 no. It has been removed. Christ has taken away that enmity. As I call it, the elephant in the room. So you can go in the room, the elephant's gone, you can relate to God straight away. All right? Now, listen. What's happened, though, is that deep down, and this is, was my condition as well, we have this mentality that we've got to sort of like uh, warm up <laughs> to get into contact with God. Now, I understand we have a process in praise and worship which tunes us in and we become aware of his presence, and we break through into the spirit realm, and that's very beautiful, etc. But you see, the danger is to think that every time now I've got to come to God, before I can, I've got to break through into the spiritual realm. So where's the music? Where's the orchestra? Where can you see? Deep down in our thinking, it's almost like we come and we want to be in his presence or speak or pray. We want to pray to God, our Father, but we sort of creep in, you see. And we sort of bowing down and we creep in to his presence almost. And then with one half eye, we sort of look up and just to see if he's cross with us or if maybe he's looking at us and you understand. Now, what's the problem with that? It sounds all very humble, all very religious and Bible, but it's actually a load of trash. Remember, David. When you write the psalm, it says, Oh God, my righteousness. God is already his righteousness. He doesn't have to do anything to get that righteousness. God is his righteousness. Do you see that? He is his righteousness. Now how do you and I, having knowing that theory that he's paid the price, blah, 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 how do we realize that sense of righteousness Immediately. Can you see? And you might say, well, that's impossible. You have to praise and you have to worship and you have to study the Bible and you have to get into the zone and then you feel righteous. I discovered that that's unnecessary. And here's why. In Psalm 6 verse 3, let's just go there. Psalm 6 verse 3, David says something else. Another one of these phrases that captures such a lot. If we just stop. Let it work on us. I think it is Psalm. No, it's Psalm 5. Apologies. Psalm 5 verse 3. Let's read it. 
My voice, this is Psalm 5, verse 3. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Do you see that? I will look up. Now here's the thing. Who is he looking up at? He's looking up at his God who is his righteousness. His God who is his righteousness. And this is before even the crucifixion. Amen. He had a revelation that God is his righteousness. Christ has been made our righteousness. But you see, he might have known that in his mind, but how does that fact become a reality for his daily walk? You understand? How do you tap into that righteousness in a way that the enmity doesn't get between you and God anymore? Even though it may well be there. You understand? Well, the key is he looks up. You see, he looks up. Now, what I need to say is this. Many people who've had the experience, the privilege, I suppose, of meeting with the Lord in the flesh. People have had open visions. They've seen him. And the one thing that almost all of them always say and comment on is his eyes. They say when you look at his eyes, what seems to flow out of them is what many have described as liquid love. There's no word to describe it. Liquid love. Liquid love. It just flows from him. Now, can I ask this question? Does he reserve that flow of liquid love from his eyes only for people who actually see it? Or is it there all the time? Here's something. Another man that had the privilege of going to heaven, coming back for there for a few minutes, he testified in the church that I was attending gospel pastor fine man and uh, he explains this one situation he's standing there in heaven with the Lord now, you can believe this or you can choose not to it's entirely up to you but there's a, a lesson here that I learned he was standing there with the Lord he was just about because obviously in the presence of such holiness any kind of sin in you in my life just becomes like obvious couldn't look at him in a sense. And he's just about to talk to the Lord about the sin and the Lord puts his hand on his shoulder and says, don't worry, I know. Do you get that? Don't worry. Don't bother to bring it up. Don't, I know. In other words, don't worry, it's covered. That's not the issue. Can you see that? It's not the issue. Now, please, we're not saying that you and I have a license to sin. I hope everybody just grasps that. We're not talking about, oh, God's forgiven me so I can do what I like. No, that's not the truth. Please, I don't want this misconception to be attributed to my teachings. Sin is sin. It's an abhorrent thing in the sight of God. Yes, yes, yes. But the blood is stronger, you see. And we're talking about salvation here. Now, the point I'm building up to is this. And the point that made me understand this beautiful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. 
in the things of the earth. They grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, the point I'm trying to make, and what I just suddenly realized is that something happened the moment we look at him. You think of the apostles coming out of the temple. There's the man that has been crippled all his life. They sense in their spirit that he has got the faith to be healed. So they go to him. He asks them for arms, silver and gold. I don't have, but then what does the apostle say? Look on us. You see that? Look at us. I never realized the power of those words. Look at us. When he looked upon them, the radiance of God's glory, then they took him by the hand and lifted him up. The healing flowed. Can you see that? The healing flowed the moment they looked. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Now, you see, when you and I approach God, we don't have to spend time getting our act together. Some people, you know, challenge them with the need to get baptized by full immersion. They say, I'm not ready yet. I've got to. And I often ask myself, what, what on earth do you have to do? You see, you can't make yourself holy and then get baptized. It's like saying, before I dare go and dirty the waters of my bath, I better go and have a shower. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. You see, you go and have a bath to get clean. You don't go and bath because you are clean. That's foolishness. In the same way with baptism, you and I can't get ourselves holy and then, oh, now we're ready to get baptized. No! The more sinful, the better almost, because that's a greater reason to get washed, you see, spiritually. Now here we have it. When we approach God, all we have to do is to look at Him, the God of our righteousness. You see? And if we understand this correctly, the enmity has been taken care of. The blood has washed everything clean. When we look on Him, what happens? The cleansing flows. Amen? We just have to look at him and let that process of looking at him activate the healing and the salvation. Amen? I will look up, you see. We don't have to get ourselves ready. That lady with the smoking problem, all she needed to do every day was just look at his face. Look at his face and receive his love, his acceptance, his holiness. Can I guarantee that had she learned to do that? After a while, guess what? She'd look at her cigarettes and say, I don't want you anymore. You get it? Those things would have fallen off her. And off you and off myself. I have a wonderful mother. She's now 91 in November. She'll turn 92. Talking to the other day, asked her how is her health. She says it's fine, but you know what? I need to realize that I can't do everything I used to do and I, I need to stop digging in the garden. I said, what? Digging, <laughs> digging in the garden. Here I am at the age of 63 going on 64. Janet will tell you to try and get me to dig in the garden is almost impossible. But what I'm saying is she's pretty healthy for her age and she loves the garden. And on a veranda, she's got a lovely little veranda that captures the sun. She's got this flower arrangement, a set of three pots and there's a little pump in there and it pumps water. But before it pumps water, you see, it's attached to a solar panel. 
one little solar panel. And you see, the moment you put that solar panel in the sunlight, the pump begins to work. It's automatic. The water begins to flow, and this little flower arrangement comes alive, basically. But you see, you can do everything you want to try and get that water to flow. You can make sure the pump is in good condition, etc., etc., etc. There's no on-off switch. I mean, there's no on-off switch. What you have to do is put the solar panel in the sunlight. The moment you do that, immediately what happens, the whole system begins to flow and life comes. Can you see this? David, the psalmist, says, I will look up. The moment he looked up, that's when salvation flows. And you see this in the life of the Lord Yeshua. Let's look at a few of his examples. Let's go to Matthew 14, verse 19, the whole parable, well, not parable, this miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Matthew 14, verse 19. Isn't this, I've read it so many times, or I know exactly what happened, but you see, now he has another dimension, Toby, right? You know the story, they don't have any food. He says to his disciples, you feed them, they look at him incredulously. There's no wimpy, there's no, and he's not even locked down. But there's no food, you see. And verse 17, they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. He says, bring them to me. Now listen to this. Verse 19. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And what? Looking up to heaven. See that? Looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. When did that flow of provision start? The moment the solar panel of his face looked up to the sun. Do you see that? The moment he looked upon his father. He looked up to heaven. The moment he did that, there was a divine connection. And then the salvation flowed. Let's look at another example. Let's go to John 11.41. John 11.41. This is the whole story of Lazarus. Okay? Now, you know the build-up to this whole thing. He let the man rot for four days. Very nice minister of religion. You ask him to come. He says, don't worry, I'm not coming. Pictures up four days. The man's stone dead. Everybody's in turmoil, trauma, etc. We know the story. All right, but anyway, the great climax comes. Okay? Verse 38, then Yeshua, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. Now we know why they had a stone. I mean, rolled him away. For he's been dead four days. Right? Then he said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Yeshua, now remember, he's already groaned in his spirit, so he's not praying yet. But what does he do? Yeshua lifted up his eyes. Notice that? He lifted up his eyes to who? Father. I thank you that you've heard me. When did the miracle start happening? The moment he looked up to his father. 
You see that? The moment he looked up to his father. Do you know there was a, a Catholic priest who had an international healing ministry? But he didn't go around holding big crusades. He prayed for the sick in his local parish. And the news of his success went throughout the church, etc. And people would write to him. They'd write and explain their predicament. And this is how he operated. Because he got so many letters, it wouldn't be possible for him to go all over the world and go and lay hands on these people. But apparently he would take the letters. He would look at them, read them. And then you know what would happen? He would look up. Can you see that? He'd make that connection with God. And apparently, for a large part, many of those people were healed. But you see what happened? The moment he looked upon God, the moment he made that divine connection, the healing flowed. Do you see that? The healing flowed. I had that experience too in the hospital when I prayed for the sick children. I had a procedure that I went through. I just introduced myself to the parents, get their permission, try and gauge where they were at, and if necessary, help them with their faith so that we're on sides. But whatever, eventually it'd come time for me to pray. I'd make a point of laying my hands on the child in the affected area, if possible, if not, just hold the hand. And every time, what I would do, close my eyes, ignore everybody, and look, you get it? Look at his face. And I'd pronounce healing in the mighty name of Yeshua. Can you believe that? And on many occasions, found out later, at the time I probably didn't feel anything, completely ignorant of this teaching here, but a lot of them were healed. A lot of them. You see, what was happening, and I didn't realize it, the moment I looked, that's when the salvation flowed. Do you see that? I'd have to work up some kind of faith, some kind of, how shall we say, effort, energy, power. I didn't have to do any of that. In a sense, I was like the conductor of the electricity. My hand on the child where the sickness was. But now how do you grab the hand of Almighty God who you cannot see? You can't. But what can we do? Look up. And you see that? In the moment we look at his face, the healing flows. Just like that solar panel. The moment we look up. Science has got a theory. Please, I don't want to display my complete ignorance here. Apparently it's called the ring theory. And it runs along the lines of something like this. Matter can transform either into energy or into substance. What makes it do that? And they found out, and they can't explain this. It's only when that energy is observed that it just becomes. The, the, act, the simple act of observation causes that energy to become matter. And the scientists out there who know more about this will have to forgive my simple explanation. But you see, that simple act of observing does something. Can you see? It's a spiritual thing, really. The moment you look at somebody Whatever you look at them with will draw out of them something. If you look at a child with love, no matter how naughty they've been, you'd very often just get a big hug out of them. I mean, 
You understand what I'm saying? Now you see, God's made it this way. When you and I approach our God, the simple act of looking at him with eyes of faith activates the flow of salvation. Amen? The simple act of looking up at him with eyes of faith activates the flow of salvation. Now, you see, other religions don't have that. And we can fall into the same trap. Other religions, they want to placate their God, their deity. They come, and the whole act of coming is an act of trying to placate, trying to get right with, trying to make sure he's happy with. And religion can also do that to us. We come into his presence, we've got to prove something. We've got to earn the right for him to bother to look at us. But you see, if we understand the scriptures, and we translate with faith, what has already happened into our daily lives. We look up at him and he is our salvation. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? We look up at him and immediately he is our salvation. The salvation flows. The way to make practical and activate the salvation that is already there, that has already been paid for at great price. You understand? The salvation that is made available to us, which is ours. You see? It is ours already. We don't have to try and now activate it by doing something, apart from one thing, just looking at him. Looking at him. And as we look at his face and we allow his love to flow over us, you know what? All those things turn strangely different. Janet will tell you I've got an early morning ritual. Well, it's not so early anymore. But uh, what I like to do is make a decent cup of tea or coffee, as the case may be, and sit outside in the sun and allow the sun to fool me out, so to speak. All right? Exactly the same process almost. You come out from the cold. You see, you come out from the cold of our existence, our lives, where the accuser of the brethren is ever present pointing out things. I mean, and not the good things either. It's almost like a pesky fly when you're trying to eat a decent steak. It keeps getting in the way. But you see, you can swat the fly, that's fine, they will come back, but what's the answer? Go out from our lives and just look up at and you see it's a process of looking at him and allowing the love that is already there that's always been streaming do you think that God waits for Graham to get out of bed then he switches on the sun a part of me would like to think that of course you see I mean really the whole universe revolves around you know who but it's not that way the sun is already shining I mean do you know the love the sun of his love the liquid love that God has for you now is always pouring out on us. All the time. Even when you are involved with your most darkest sin, God forbid. But even then, God's love is pouring out upon us. You see, he's not the accuser of the brethren. Let's look at that wonderful scripture. Rather than being the accuser of the brethren, what is he? Let's go to John, John 3.17. 
John 3.17. Let's finish off with this beautiful scripture. John 3.17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's not the accuser of the brethren. He understands something. You and I will be sin conscious as long as you're on this earth. What do we need? A revelation of his love. Amen. A revelation of his love. And what this teaching is about is how you and I, with understanding, can enjoy the revelation of his love. What do we have to do? Look up. Just look up. Don't try and do any fancy spiritual mumbo-jumbo. Forget about it. Just look at him. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. I mean.